0: So let's take a little journey back into this great history and talk about one of my favorite illustrators from long ago, Kate Greenaway. Born in 1846 in England, Catherine Kate Greenaway trained in art from age 12 and grew up to illustrate over 30 books. Kate's style was very different than other illustrators at the time. Her pictures were soft watercolors that captured the innocence of children doing typical things in their natural surroundings one of the things that will stand out to you if you look at Greenaway's illustrations is the beautiful clothing. One researcher tells us that this is likely because her mother was a seamstress, which made Greenaway very attuned to clothing styles, particularly those she remembered from her childhood. You can really see this influence clearly, as all her children wear early 19th century costumes graced with bonnets and hats and lots of fabric and ribbons. Her sense of style was so important that it burst out of the pages of her books, with many parents and even a well-known department store in London designing clothing for their children to look like the pictures in Greenaway's books. By all accounts, Greenaway was very shy and unassuming, but her work made her famous as she was also well-loved outside of England, with her books selling in France, Germany, and America. One of her most famous books is A Apple Pie, which is an alphabet book showing various things that happen to a pie. Like when we get to Q, it is quartered. The images of children playfully interacting with the pie are rendered in vivid colors from dark green to turquoise. And even today, children and adults will smile at the antics. One of my personal favorites are the illustrations she did for Robert Browning's edition of The Pied Piper of Hamlin in 1889. The illustrations dominate the page, and the spare rendering of the children and their activities makes a very powerful addition to this tale. Today, Kate Greenaway's name lives on because the English Children's Book Award for the Illustration is named after her, and you can still get versions of her books in print and as ebooks. So if you're looking for a classic work of children's literature, why not check out the work of Kate Greenaway from this recommendation here at Rachel's World? Some stories aren't
2: new. In fact, some stories have been around for centuries. But then along comes an author who makes it new and fresh with a personal touch. That's exactly the story behind our guest author today, Brianna Shields, who has just successfully published her first book, a fictional story based on a very old tale from India about Vishakanya or a poison maiden. Brianna's book is entitled Poison's Kiss. The sequel, Poison's Cage, comes out in 2018. Shields graduated from Brigham Young University with a B.A. in English. When she's not reading or writing, she loves traveling, eating good food, especially if it's pasta or chocolate, and spending time with her husband, her three children, and an extremely spoiled miniature poodle.
0: Here's Rachel Wadham with Brianna Shields on Worlds Awaiting. We're on the phone today with Brianna. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to introduce your new book and your very first book to our listening audience today. So to start out, tell us a little bit
3: about your novel. Okay. my It's called Poison's Kiss. It's a young adult fantasy. Um, based on Indian folklore about a girl called a vishakanya, which is Sanskrit for poison damsel. And she has been fed small bits of poison since childhood, and so now she's deadly. She's immune to the poison, but deadly to anyone she comes in contact with and being used as an assassin. And then she's ordered to kill someone that she knows, and she starts to question everything, and her life starts to unravel.
0: That is a marvelous way to describe it. It is a very on-the-edge-of-your-seat kind of exciting adventure and fantasy novel. So when you started writing and you started thinking about creating this novel, why did you pick this story? What is it about this context, the setting, or the characters that kind of attracted you to, to this story?
3: Well, I was listening to a lecture series on espionage and covert operations. And in the very first lecture, the professor was kind of giving an overview of the history of espionage in different areas of the world And he mentioned just in passing the visekanya. It was just one sentence in an 18-hour course, and then he moved on. But the idea just fascinated me, um, mostly because most spies and assassins are recruited as adults, and so they know what they're getting into. So the idea of taking a baby and making such a monumental decision for her, turning her into a killer, just fascinated me. And I wondered what would happen to a girl who was made into a Vishakanya but not really cut out to be a killer that was more of a a gentle soul. And I just couldn't stop thinking about the idea. And I knew I had to write it.
0: That That is one of the things I love about this book is that element of choice. And I think that that's a, a strong theme in this book, that she really didn't have a choice when she became what she became. But in the end, part of it is her trying to extend her choice of, of who she is kind of as a as moving into her adulthood and making those kind of choices. Did did you think about things like that when you were creating it? Did you think consciously about that or did those things just evolve kind of organically as you told the story?
3: Yeah, a little of both. It was definitely, um, it was definitely something on my mind as I created that. And I think teenagers often, they have expectations from other people and, and part of growing up is kind of asserting your own choices and starting to realize you have agency and using that wisely and, And so I was definitely thinking about that as I wrote. Um, And then other parts came more organically, and I think that theme developed organically as well. So because the the Vishakanya story originally comes from India, it was important to me that the world building reflect that. And so I did a ton of research, um, reading tons of folk tales and fairy tales from India, um, reading up on their myths and and customs and cultures, and, and really tried to bring that strong sense of setting to the book. So it's set in a fictional world, but Sundari is based on India. That really is
0: a great way to bring it to life and to connect these things to a fantasy context, but but to the real to the real world. when When you were doing this, what was your process? How did you did you write it all an outline or did you do all the research first? and then you started writing? what What process did you use to approach your writing?
3: So I did a bunch of research first just to kind of get a feeling of the setting that I wanted, but I always, I don't tend to outline first. I tend to start with an idea and then maybe three or four big turning points in the book, and then I just like to discovery write between those points. Um, I find it really satisfying to kind of discover the story as I go along, and so that's how I did this novel, wrote it chronologically, Um, and then obviously there's editing that goes in later to make sure that you structured it well, but... Um, I like to just kind of discovery write. That's becoming harder as the more, the farther I get into publishing because editors like to see outlines. So my process is changing a little bit as I go along. But in my perfect world, that's what I like to do.
0: That concept of discovery writing, I think, is a really key issue here for me, because I think a lot of writers, particularly those starting out, like that kind of sense of discovery. Was there anything that you discovered along through this process, either about the writing process itself, or maybe about your characters or the way the story went that that surprised you, that, that you really didn't expect when you started out?
3: Yes. So the relationship between Miranda, the main character, and her brother, Manny, um, I had planned on that from the beginning, but one of the discoveries along the way was how much I loved that aspect of the story and how important the relationship became and that that kind of grew into a bigger thing as i as i discovery wrote and really fell in love with the characters and and it turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the book
0: i agree totally and i think that that was one of my favorite parts of the book particularly that sense of creating family and and how do we connect with people around us and and come to that understanding of what family is it, it? Is that piece of it something That you drew on from Some kind of experience or Some kind of connection that you had To your own life or is that just something That came because of The way the characters were structured
3: So a little of both My um, I have a younger brother that's 10 years younger than me and I was always kind of a second mom To him, um, always babysitting Him and telling him stories and So that relationship I think very much informed Miranda's relationship with Manny. Um, but then also I love the idea of, of choosing our family, of creating family, of loving people based on our choices. And so that that kind of evolved organically as it went along.
0: What is the type of story that you think – you want to tell i mean you categorize this as a fantasy which which it definitely is but there's such universal wonderful themes that are that are more realistic like family and choice and those types of things so do you feel like maybe categorizing something like this um puts it in a box that that maybe might exclude readers or do you like that we can categorize it as a specific kind of genre in a specific kind of place
3: yeah well i do think um Sometimes I wish we didn't have such strict genres. I think that um, it, it does help readers discover the kinds of books they like if they can—they know they like fantasy and go to that shelf and and find what they like. But I also think sometimes it limits us in what we in what we think we like. I didn't discover fantasy until fairly late. I didn't read a lot of it as a child, and it wasn't really until college and adulthood that I realized everything I'd been missing. Um, and then that was partly because I pictured fantasy as one way, as, as really high fantasy with names you couldn't pronounce and locations you couldn't pronounce and and long um, info dumps of of history and different kingdoms fighting each other. And I thought that's what it had to be. And then it was really Harry Potter that opened up my 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 eyes to all the wonderful things fantasy could be and be still be really accessible. So sometimes I wish we could get rid of genre boundaries a little bit and. And I think that would help people discover more things that they enjoy that they don't realize they would.
0: That, that's a wonderful insight. And I, I think this connection, too, you chose to write this from a young adult point of view, and, and it comes out as a young adult novel. Was that a conscious choice? Did you put that kind of boundary on that for a reason? Or did this just come out as a novel and it just happened to be a young adult book in the end?
3: So that one was a conscious choice. Um, I just really love this time of life, um, the the ages of young adults. There's just so much discovery happening and so much change and so many decisions being made that's really different than any other time of life. And so um, I love young adult literature for that reason. So that one was, was on purpose
0: That is why I love young adult literature, too. I think there is this this wonderful sense of discovery that that we don't often have as adults or we lose, I guess, as adults as we go forward and and seeing those changes and development. And I I would agree, particularly for the themes and and context of this book, it really a young adult uh, main character just makes a lot of sense from from my perspective as a reader. So I, I appreciate that. As a, from a reader's perspective as well. Brianna, as, as we close up our conversation today, tell us one thing that you would like your your potential readers or listeners out there who are discovering your book right now for the, probably the first time. What would you like them to remember about your book?
3: Oh, I hope they just remember being swept away. I, my goal is always to write something that makes someone stay up late at night with a flashlight under the covers and just escape from the world for a little bit, and then hopefully come away um, learning something more about themselves and and exploring some of the the themes in the book in their own lives and so I just hope it sticks with them.
0: I hope so too. So if you haven't read it yet, run out there, check out Brianna's Poison's Kiss, a beautiful young adult fantasy that, that I think will be appealing to a great many readers. So thank you so much, Brianna, for sharing us with us about your writing process and your new novel today.
3: Thanks so much for
0: having me. Thank you.
2: Young adult author Brianna Shields talking about her first book, Poison's Kiss, based on a folktale from India. Up next on Worlds Awaiting, local poet Gina Clark talks with Rachel about the joys of digging deeper into a poem, going below the surface, and discovering greater riches in the process. She also suggests reading poetry as a family, even adding a poem to the bedtime routine. Clark is a Utah native and mother of six children. She's taught as an adjunct at Brigham Young University and Utah Valley University, and is currently a writing instructor with BYU's Independent Study. Gina Clark is an avid supporter of her local library, where she's been a volunteer storyteller for over a decade. Her monthly storytime presentations might better be called Poetry Time, since she fills them with poems for readers, young and old alike. Here's Rachel and Gina
0: Clark. We're talking with Gina today. Welcome, Gina. Hi. I am so excited to t- chat with you today. You have a really strong background um, in poetry and particularly in the academics of poetry and i I know that sometimes, particularly for our listeners out there it 's that academics of poetry that makes makes it a little bit hard to get into this beautiful form of literature. But the reality is there is some beauty and there is some wonder in studying poetry and in understanding its form and understanding its application. In maybe a more academic way, not necessarily a full academic way, like getting a doctorate in poetry or something. So let's talk a little bit about why do you think that kind of study of poetry is important? So let's start there. Why is the study of poetry at that more deep level important? Well, I think that a great poem
4: has many layers of meaning to offer. It has much to offer In terms of of depth, Uh, we were speaking about Leslie Norris. Um, He used to tell a story about, uh, well, it was a teaching story that when he wrote poems, he would try to imagine as his audience, a little old man in Chicago is how he phrased it. I remember in some of my poetry workshops with him. And the little old man in Chicago, he said, was not particularly bright. He certainly wasn't an academic. And he said that when he wrote his poems, he always tried to think of that little old man in Chicago as his audience. And that little old man had to at least be able to understand the surface of the poem. He had to understand what was basically happening. Now, he may not get all the depths but he at least had to understand the surface. And even though I I recognize that some poets in contemporary poetry do not adhere to that rule of making a clear surface of the poem, I tend to to believe that that's important, that you need to be able to access at least the surface meaning. However, implicit in that story is the idea that there are depths, that there is more to understand, there is more to grasp, there is more to understand in terms of uh, word meaning, meaning. Uh, what the shades, the, 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 the etymology, the, the, uh, the, the the oral qualities of of a particular word. Um, You can find more and more riches, the more you dig. And that, I think, is in some ways, a measure of a really good poem. (laughs) Some poems don't, stand up to that kind of digging. You know, what's on the surface is all it has to offer. But as you learn a little bit more, as you look a little bit more closely at the poem, experience it on more than one level, there's the experience of just hearing it read and that kind of visceral initial experience with a poem. Uh, that is great. I think that's wonderful. I think that's the first place you've got to go. But then to take that poem and to say, well, let's look at it line by line. Let's look at what this word means, and 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 can I see any repetition or patterns that are happening in the poem in terms of the language that's being used? Um, I like actually what um, in this Silver Pennies book that was my grandmother's a very old old book, a book for children. This uh uh, uh anthologist Blanche Jennings Thompson she. She says this, the quickest way to kill any possible interest in a poem is to say, today we are going to learn a poem named Barter by Sarah Teasdale. You may all sit up straight in your seats and listen. <laughs> and, you know, we we when we're, when we're asked to just kind of sit and passively engage a work, you know, I think we turn off and I think especially – Children today are going to turn off because uh, they have so many other things to to be distracted by. But what this uh, Blanche Jennings Thompson suggests is to establish a mood by music, a picture, a story, another poem perhaps, or sometimes just skillful questions leading up to the poem, to the thought in the poem to be read. Then be sure to take time at the end of the reading for an interesting discussion to actually engage the ideas, to talk about the poem with someone. I think that's a great way to learn a poem, to, to really get at the depths of it, is to talk about it, see what somebody else sees in a particular poem, um, what resonates with them. All of these things are important.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I love that sense of this being more of a conversation because it really is that way. I think sometimes particularly with literature or even with art, you know fine art or music we we tend to think okay it's just being given to me but it really is a conversation between you and the producer of that piece mm-hmm. and then even the experience you share with others or the conversation you have with others as as part of that kind of whole piece so this really is more than than just a passive experience it's about this kind of conversation that we're all trying to build here. So, you know, as a teacher, what kind of questions do you ask your students about poetry and how can we learn from those questions that you might ask that would help us start these kind of conversations with our families or with our children? Well I I think
4: you know you can start out pretty Broadly, you know, what's what do you what do you think? What's your response to this? What do you like? What do you not like? <laughs> I think that's another thing that's important to do is acknowledge that there may be things in the poem that you didn't like or that you didn't grasp or didn't understand. Right? I, I think also to ask about the sensory response to the poem. What were you seeing? What were you hearing? What were you feeling? What do these kinds of words remind you of? I think again, just inviting a child, a young adult to to read. The poem aloud, and then even to hear it read aloud. To remove it from the page and say, "Well, you just listen to me for a minute, and and hear how I read this poem." And, and there are different ways to emphasize, different ways to to uh, direct the voice when one reads a poem. And so, all these things prompt a discussion. But yes, I think, like you say, letting poems be uh, a way to start a conversation. You know, the poet uh, Naomi Shihab Nye talks about how the speech between mother and child is a conversation, It is a kind of a, a, rather, a kind of a poem, you know, that, that affirmation of, of a mother and child speaking to each other. And poems can be one way to, you know, prompt more of that that conversation between parent and child.
0: Kind of moving more towards your role as a mother. Mm-hmm. How did you build that in your own family? I mean, how did you take this love, this academic love that you built of poetry um, that became, you know, a love that you're trying to now share with, with your children that you're mothering? Well, that, that's a good question. You know, I have a, a, a daughter
4: who's a sophomore in high school. <laughs> uh, this might not be the best example. You might <laughs> uh, find it ironic. I did. She uh, had to, for her sophomore English class, was assigned to write a poem. And she she was really struggling, and so she came to me and she wanted help. And you know, I I'm great. I'd love to help you with the poem. This isn't math. I'm I'm glad to. <laughs>
0: well, I, can I, I, I can do it. Uh, yes. I can experience. it. Yes.
4: <laughs> yes. And sitting with her and trying to get her to write, help her to write a poem. I I was struck by the irony. I thought to myself, I cannot believe that my child. <laughs> has so little interest in this particular, so little inclination towards, you know, writing a sort of contemporary style poem. And, <laughs> and it was a good experience in the end. And I think we were able to connect. But I guess my point in sharing this is that not every child is going to gravitate towards it and grasp it and embrace it in the same way that that we might expect them to Um but, yes, I certainly did read poetry to this young daughter of mine uh, who's now a high schooler and to all of my children. So I, I think most definitely in those those wonderful intimate moments when they're small, you know, when you're all curled up on the couch and you're, you're reading before naptime or before bedtime, that poetry is something that uh, that definitely deserves a place and can, can find a place in that. You know, uh, when you talk about bedtime stories and songs – um, you know, I, I love to share bedtime poems, you know, the, the the same poems that I would practice for my volunteer lap time at, at the library. I would practice with my children first as they, they go to bed, and there's something calming and soothing about that at those particular moments, that the repetition of the sound and and the, the musicality of the language is a lot like a lullaby. And so I think those are great things to do that uh, maybe uh, add a poem to your nighttime routine, something simple, something um, quiet, something settling, that that could be something that that is a part of your routine. Children who are a little bit older who can write, who can read independently, there are lots of fun kinds of games you can play. As a matter of fact, I I have a a wonderful family. I wouldn't call us uh, literary particularly, (laughs) but... um, One thing that we have done as a Christmas tradition is we'll have a a poetry night as part of our Christmas Eve celebrations, (laughs) and everyone will compose a poem. This actually came from my college-age brothers who uh, this was something that they had done with their friends. And, and, and you know, I'm sure that it, it could uh, take a turn for the, the juvenile and the silly, and it, it did usually. But, you know, choose five or six words and say, okay, everybody has to find a way to put these six words into the poem that you create. And, you know, playing with poetry is is, is a lot of fun. It's something you can do with your family. We've done that with, with our children too. And as soon as they're able to actually generate poetry and words and, and write on their own, that's a, a fun a fun thing that they can do to practice. So, um, But again, I think exposure is probably the first place to start, to actually try to open their minds and their, their, their eyes to the things that poetry can do.
0: Well, and I love that, Gina. I really appreciate that sense that just opening their eyes, but then also understanding that there's going to be – failures or things where we we don't quite succeed because I think particularly when we feel passionate about something as adults or parents, we try to give that passion to our children. And if they don't feel passionate Mm -hmm. about it in the same way we do, we we sometimes define that as as a failure. Oh, no, we failed. But, you know, you never know. Maybe when she's in college, Mm -hmm. your daughter will say, hey, I remember writing this poem. And and maybe it was more about the relationship that you built That's and the time exactly you spent right. together than it was actually about the poem so yes. you know sharing what we love and making it part of our family heritage but then making sure that we that we accept that these are individuals who have their own things. so that story i think very true. provides us with a great example <laughs> so thank you thank you for your yes. failure and, and helping us to understand how to be better in our own so yes. i i appreciate that uh, viewpoint thank you so much dina for being with us today thank you
2: Local poet Gina Clark talking with Rachel about the rewards of digging deeper into a poem. As long as we're on the subject, let's finish up the show with two poems. The first is written by our guest, Gina Clark, entitled A Bird's Brain, read by Whitney Snow. And the second poem is Robert Louis Stevenson's Foreign Lands, read by Garrett Rushforth. A Bird's Brain by Gina Clark A bird's brain is just a hair heavier than air not larger than a pebble or perhaps a pea. And so I do not see just how the bird fits every song she's ever heard. Every sight, every height, every land she's ever scanned. From upside down and circling all around inside her tiny head, her breath of a brain feather weighted, her skim skull's shell ringing like a bright bell. I do not know how or why I cannot fly, so I'll ask you, How does her view of the great blue sky fit into her beady little eye? And all she's seen, how can it curl into a brain no bigger than a bean? Her thoughts must be light to lift her hollow bones in flight.
1: Foreign Lands from a Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson Up into the cherry tree, who should climb but little me? I held the trunk with both my hands and looked abroad in foreign lands. I saw the next door garden lie adorned with flowers before my eye and many pleasant places more that I had never seen before. I saw the dimpling river pass and be the sky's blue looking glass. The dusty roads go up and down with people tramping into town. If I could find a higher tree farther and farther I should see to where the grown up river slips into the sea among the ships. To where the road on either hand lead onward into fairyland, where all the children dine at five, and all the playthings come alive.
2: Two poems, A Bird's Brain by local poet Gina Clark, read by Whitney Snow, production assistant for BYU Radio's The Appleseed, and Robert Louis Stevenson's Foreign Lands, read by one of our sound engineers, Garrett Rushforth. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.